Well, as mentioned, today we are in the culmination of season two of our Dangerous Prayers series. And season two's theme has been Break Me. Break Me. Because pain is often the path to where you want and need to be. Now, that's not something that we're excited about sometimes, but God often does use painful, unpleasant circumstances to take us to the place where he wants us and where he needs us to be. And today we're talking about the dangerous prayer, encouraging the dangerous prayer, humble me, humble me. And what we're actually talking about when, in today's message is the idea of purpose. Because as we recognize what our true purpose is, it's humbling and allows us to accomplish the purpose that God has in mind for us. And the way that that ties together is demonstrated by our bottom line for today. Today's bottom line is this, that I'm a means to an end that's not about me. I'm a means to an end that's not about me. And today's challenge will be to pray that prayer, humble me, humble me. And we're also going to add that we will do, part of the challenge is to not only pray the prayer, but to do one act of service, to be able to leverage ourselves for the benefit of another. And that's actually part of the theme when I took a sabbatical a couple of years ago, that idea of leverage. And a humbling process has definitely been a part of my story since Cornerstone started. And maybe you can relate to some things like this. When I started, when we started with Cornerstone over a decade ago, uh, much more than a decade now, uh, I really thought that, you know, I was so smart and so talented and just thought everything was going to go so well and almost nothing that I expected happened the way I had hoped and expected. And it was a very humbling, even humiliating process for me. But over the course of that experience, I recognized that that was exactly what I needed. I needed to go through that humbling process. Because if everything had turned out the way that I had hoped and expected that it would have, then that would have solidified in me some very unhealthy patterns. And I needed that part broken. And so that's what God did. And as a result, probably a lot better pastor than I would be otherwise. Definitely not perfect. Definitely not where I need to be, but definitely a lot better than I would be if I had not gone through that humbling process. And what I realized in part through that and through many other experiences along the way is that it really wasn't about me. It wasn't about my strength or my intellect or my talents or my abilities. It was much more about what God wanted to do in and through me for the benefit of others. And three years ago, when I took my first sabbatical, that was the theme that that developed over the course of those several months, that I was there to leverage everything that I am, my skills, my abilities, my talents, whatever I can bring to the table was to be leveraged for the benefit of God's kingdom and the people that God loves. And that's not unique to me as a pastor, 
uh, it is really the way that God uses all of us. He wants to take all that he has put in us, all that he has made us to be, and leverage it for the benefit of those around us. But the only way that that's going to happen is when we recognize that it's not really about us, that I am a means to an end that is not about me. So let's define again what we're talking about when we are talking about the breaking process. We said early on in the series that breaking is the pattern. It's a pattern that shows up in the scriptures and uh, the church over and over again, a pattern of humbling. And that's our theme for today. But it's a pattern of humbling through failure, loss, sorrow, or humiliation. And this breaking process is both painful and unpleasant at the time, but results in greater wholeness, healthier character, and greater effectiveness in the long run. And today, when we're talking about praying for humility, praying that God will humble me, we're going to focus in on the idea that it's a pattern of humbling that happens often through loss. And sometimes it's loss in the way that you think of it, loss of something or someone, but probably just as often it has to do with the fact that we lose a, a little bit of our pride. We lose a little bit of our sense that we are all of that and that we have everything that it takes and that it's all about us. We have to lose that perspective in order to gain an understanding of what God's purpose for us is. Because when we recognize that, when God humbles us and shows us that it's not all about us, he, in that process, is going to show us that we are a means to an end that is not about me. A means to an end that is not about me. In Rick Warren's best-selling Purpose Driven Life, uh, this is how the book begins. It's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you are placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. It's not about you. And it's not about me. And when we recognize that and that God's purpose for us is his purpose, which is loving God, loving others, making disciples, we recognize that we are a means to an end that is not about me. Today's key passage that we're going to be looking at is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. This is the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. They had been dealing with some conflict, and part of his prescription for dealing with that conflict is for them to humble themselves. And 
in the process of encouraging that, he uses Jesus as his prime example. So let's look at it together. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. He says, Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of yourselves as better than yourselves. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for only your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the highest place of honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." So let's focus in on his definition and his prescription for how to be in one mind, how to humble ourselves. He says in verse 3, don't be selfish. Don't be selfish. Don't be concerned about your own self and self-interest. That, uh, that is the opposite of love. And in fact, when we were defining what our core values as a church should be, we talked about, well, love should definitely be one of those, but we wanted to define it a little bit more practically. You know, what does love look like? Because love is such a broad concept. And the phrase that we came up with was being others-centered. So love is being other-centered. The opposite of that is being self-centered, to be selfish. And he goes on to say, don't try to impress others. So being selfish is thinking only about yourself. And here he's saying, don't be so concerned about what others think about you. Don't be so concerned about trying to do image management. Don't try to impress others. And now he switches to the positive. If you're not supposed to be selfish, don't try to impress others. The next phrase is to be humble, to be humble. And that uh, has been defined as uh, not that you don't think well of yourself, but you just don't think as much about yourself when you're humble. Another aspect of this as I was studying was the idea that you recognize your insufficiencies, the places where you don't measure up. Last week, our dangerous prayer was convict me. And the whole idea was show me where I'm falling short. Show me where I'm not measuring up. And when we recognize that, when we recognize that there are places where we're not measuring up, that's humbling. It shows us our 
inconsistencies and our insufficiencies. It shows us where we are lacking. It gives us a true picture of ourselves, and that's part of the idea of being humble. And then uh, he combines that with the idea of thinking of others, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Other translations talk about thinking of others in addition to yourself. That It's not that you don't take care of yourself or that you don't care about yourself, but it's that you care about others and you're willing to set aside your own preferences, your own comfort, your own resources, whatever the case may be, for the benefit of others. It's not that others are more important than you, but it's a willingness to treat them as if they are. He goes on, verse 4, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. So that's the idea that we're trying to pull out when we say one of our core values is love and that that is being others-centered. That when you go into a situation, when you're deciding what to do, you're not only looking out for your own interest, but you're concerned about, thinking about, aware of, looking to take interest in the interest of others as well. And then in the next verse, he begins a, an extended description of how Jesus acted. He says to think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. So his prescription is to look at life, look at yourself the way that Christ approached life and looked at himself. And I love the way the message translation puts it. This is the continuation. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had, talking about Jesus, equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside his privileges. He was equal to God but he didn't cling to those advantages of Godship. He set aside those privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, of a servant. He became human. In other words, he took all of his power, all of his status, and he was willing to lay it down and leverage it for the benefit of others. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, there's that word again, selfless, obedient life, and then died a selfless, obedient death, and the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. So what's he saying there? He's saying that Jesus, who was God in the flesh, was willing to set aside all the privileges, all of that status, and humbled himself, taking on the form of a human, taking on the role of a servant or slave, and then becoming obedient to that whole process, even to the point of dying a criminal's death on a cross. He was willing to do all of that, willing to let himself become a means to an end that was not himself for our benefit. And the Apostle Paul uses Jesus as an example of what it means to humble ourselves because what it means 
is that we are an end to a means that is not about us. Let's look at another example of the humbling process. And this one is found in the Old Testament. In the first book of the Old Testament, Genesis, in chapters 37 to 50, it tells the story of Joseph. Joseph was one of the sons of Jacob, and his story begins with a couple of dreams. He says to his brothers, listen to this dream. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain, Suddenly, my bundle stood up and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. So his brothers responded, so you think you will be our king? They understood the symbolism of this, that he was the young, one of the younger brothers and he, there, uh, all these uh, stacks of grain were around and the other ones bowed down to his. The interpretation was clear. You think you're going to be our king? You actually think that you will reign over us? And it says that they hated him all the more because of his dreams, all the more because his, he was already his father's favorite and was showed favoritism. So they were jealous of him. But having heard about his dreams, they hated him all the more because of the way he talked about them. It wasn't just enough that he had these dreams. He shared them with his brothers. He talked about it with his brothers. He was constantly stirring this up. And so you see that as far as Joseph is concerned at this point, it seems like he recognizes and, and understands, oh, this is all about me. I'm going to reign. I'm going to be a king. And then he gets another dream where the sun and moon and stars fall down in worship before him, symbolizing his mother and father and all of his brothers. So he really thinks that, wow, this is going to be great. I am going to be big stuff. And all of these people who I usually would be serving, who are usually above me, are going to bow down to me. His perspective is all about himself at this point. And he rubs it in. He kind of pours salt in the wound by talking about it. Now, this is a long story, so I'll summarize it for you. But relationship with his family did not get any better. And in fact, they're out in the fields and they decide, you may have heard this story, you may have heard it from the scriptures, you may have heard it from Andrew Lloyd Webber. However, but it's probably a pretty familiar story that his brothers decide to get rid of him. They are going to uh, pretend that he has been killed, tell his father that he has been killed by a wild animal. They think about actually doing the deed themselves, but end up selling him into slavery. And Joseph ends up in Egypt in slavery. There he becomes, as a slave, the leader of a household. So he gets a little boost. But then in this position where he is in a position of trust and authority, he is falsely accused by the woman of the house of an attack. He gets thrown into prison. So now he first sold into slavery, then thrown into prison. While he's in prison, he's imprisoned with a couple of people from Pharaoh's household. And then there are two more dreams that the baker and the cupbearer have. One of them 
ends up going to his death in fulfillment of his dream. The other is restored to his position in Pharaoh's household as the interpretation of his dream. And so Joseph tells him, when you're restored, remember me. I've been falsely accused. I'm here rotting in jail. I need justice. I need help. So remember me when you're back in Pharaoh's household. The cupbearer is returned to Pharaoh's household and to his position and promptly forgets all about Joseph until Pharaoh himself has two dreams. And the cupbearer remembers, hey, I know somebody who knows how to interpret dreams. Joseph is uh, brought out of prison, cleaned up, presented to Pharaoh, and is able with God's help to interpret the dreams that Pharaoh has dreamed. And the interpretation of that, those dreams, is that there's going to be a famine in the land of Egypt. And in fact, not just in the land of Egypt, but in the whole known nearby world. And so as a result of that being forewarned, they are able to prepare and Pharaoh places Joseph in command of that preparation. And he becomes in essence, the ruler of Egypt right under Pharaoh. The famine comes as was foretold by the dreams that Pharaoh had as interpreted by Joseph. And this famine extends all the way to the nearby countries where Joseph's family, his brothers, his parents are still living. They hear, because Egypt has been able to prepare, that there is food in Egypt. And so their dad sends the brothers to Egypt to get food. And lo and behold, who is in charge of distributing the food? No one but Joseph himself. But they don't recognize him. It's been many years and now he is, uh, looks very Egyptian in dress and language. And so they don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. It's a great story. You should read the whole thing. But in the end, he is able to feed, save, rescue his family and eventually reveals himself to them. And in fact, they have come and the whole family, including his parents, come and bow down before him, just like his original dreams foretold. But at that time, we kind of get the sense that Joseph early on thought it was all about him. But listen to what Joseph says as he's explaining his situation to his family. There's been a shift. There's been a recognition that it wasn't about him and his power and his exercising that power, leveraging that power for his benefit over his family. It's much more about how he and his prosperity and his position can be leveraged to benefit others. He says in chapter 45, verse 5, don't be upset, talking to his brothers. Don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves. They were beating themselves up because they knew they were guilty. They knew they had horribly mistreated Joseph. Don't be upset. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me into this place. Think about that. That's so crazy. It's like, oh, don't worry about it. You sold me into slavery, but don't be angry. Don't beat yourselves up over it. But why? His perspective had dramatically changed. It was 
God who sent me. He could see in the midst of these circumstances, these painful, breaking, humbling, humiliating circumstances, that it was God who put him through that whole process. God who sent me here ahead of you. Why? To preserve your lives. And then later he sums it up like this. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. And what was that good? Was it his exaltation? Was it his position? Was it his glory? No. He goes on to say, he, God, brought me to this position so, indicating purpose. What was, what was the idea behind this? Why am I here? So I could save the lives of many people. In other words, it's not about me. It's not about what can be done for me. It's what I can do for others because I'm a means to an end that's not about me. You may remember that I said that the context for the Apostle Paul's letter for the flip to the Philippians included the fact that within the church there was a little bit of division, there was a little bit of conflict. So I want to take you back to the beginning of that passage where he says, make my joy complete. In other words, okay, this, this kind of stuff is going on, but I, I want you to make my joy complete. I want you to, to put, put that needle on the 10 of my joy. How would you do that? By being of the same mind. To be, to be thinking along the same lines. And he's going to, like we said, use Jesus and his thought process and his attitude, his way of handling things as the paradigm, as the model for what we as followers of Jesus should be doing. We should be like-minded. And then he goes on to define, well, what, what, should, what same mind should we be? Are we going to agree on everything? No, but let's agree on the things that are most important. And what are they? He's going to define them. Loving one another. Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. And that wasn't new, but the standard was, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So let's, let's forget some of the peripheral stuff. Let's not be divided over things. Let's agree and center around and focus on the main thing. Let's love one another. Because Jesus said, this is the command, and it's also the distinguishing characteristic of my followers. He said, by this, your love for one another, everyone will know that you are my disciples. So he says, let's be like-minded. Let's prioritize love. Let's love one another. And then he goes on to say, and working together with one mind and purpose. One mind, like-minded, Let's be on the same page. Let's gather around that same purpose. Let's love one another and let's figure out what our purpose is. And so often in, in the scriptures we see and in churches we hear as we should, we're supposed to love God, love others and make disciples. One of the ways that we have used that and personalized that for us is that we want to see more people saying yes to Jesus more often. We want to see people who were not following Jesus become followers of Jesus, saying yes to Jesus for the first time. 
And then if you want a simple definition of what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, it's just continuing to say yes to him over and over again, more and more often. Because as a follower of Jesus, what you're saying is, you're gonna lead me, you're gonna guide me, you have my unqualified yes, I've written a blank check to you with my life. So that we're willing to become a means to an end that is not about me, just as Jesus did. So here's the challenge for this week. Every week in the Dangerous Prayer series, we have challenged you to pray the Dangerous Prayer for that week. This week is the same. We are challenging you to pray, humble me. If you're watching on the Church Online platform, this will be the time where our chat hosts are bringing up this phrase. And you'll see off to the side, just to the right of that, a blank heart. And when you click on that, it's going to turn red. And that's just your way of responding. I'm going to encourage you to do that right now. If you're willing to become a means to an end that is not you, to find your purpose in being purposeful for the benefit of others, if you're willing to pray that prayer, humble me, then I'll encourage you to click that heart as just a way of showing your response. If you're watching on another platform and you can put a heart emoji or a thumbs up or whatever, then do that. But in some way, just acknowledge, just represent that you are going to pray this prayer. And this week, we're actually going to add a secondary, kind of a part two to the challenge, and that is to actually do something, to do one act of service, to take something that belongs to you, something that is yours, your time, your intellect, your expertise, your resources, your stuff, and then leverage those for the benefit of someone else. Do some act of service that just acknowledges to you that you, your purpose is not about you. That those things that you have and have at your disposal, you're willing to leverage for the benefit of others to do one act of service. And again, this is the example that Jesus set. What did he do? In Philippians 2.8, it says he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death. He was willing to set aside all of his privileges and rights in order to leverage his life for the benefit of us. What did he do? He did this in obedience to God. He was following God's plan. And God's plan for his creation for us is that we would bend the knee to Christ, that we would bow in obedience and uh, service to him, that we would believe in Jesus Christ. And belief is not just a mental assent, it is an entire entrusting of ourselves to God through Jesus Christ. Part of his process was giving his life to die a criminal's death on a, the cross of crucifixion. And who is that criminal that he died for? Well, it's us. He took the death that we deserve. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, not just a physical death, but a spiritual death, to find a separation from God, both now and into eternity, because the wages of sin is death. 
but he was willing, having lived a perfect life, having not earned those wages, to lay down his life for us in substitution for us by dying that death on a cross. He laid down his life, gave his life, suffered a tortuous death that he did not earn in order that we could be given as a gift freely the life and forgiveness and fresh start and an eternity secured with him in heaven, a life that we could never earn on our own. So that's what we're encouraging everyone to recognize and everyone to do. Again, if you're following along on the church online platform, there'll be a little pop-up in the comments. I commit my life to Jesus. We're going to encourage you to say yes to Jesus. And maybe you recognize that there's never been a time where you've made it official, where you crossed the line of faith and said, I know that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, but I want his death to count for me. If you're not following on the church online platform, you can text yes to our church number 603-225-2550. We want to see more people saying yes to Jesus more often. What are you saying yes to? You're saying yes to his forgiveness, that his death on the cross is going to count for you. You're saying yes to his leadership and lordship, that you are going to, from this point on, turn over, commit your life, leverage your life, surrender your life for his purposes, that he is going to be the leader and Lord of your life. Say yes to Jesus. And when you do, here's what you can expect. You see, our tendency is to think that if we live for ourselves, if we pursue our own happiness, if we just focus on gaining wealth and power and pleasure, that that is going to fill up that hole of purpose in our lives. But what we'll actually find is that only when we empty ourselves, only when we leverage ourselves, only when we pour ourselves out in service for the benefit of others, when we become a means to an end that is not about me, that's when our life is full of purpose. That's actually what gives meaning to our lives. And what if all of, all of God's people we're just committed to this, that I'm going to live a selfless, other-centered life, that I'm going to recognize that all my gifts, all my talents, everything that God places in my hands is not for my consumption, but for the benefit of those around me, to leverage what I have for the benefit of the world around me. In doing so, we'll be following the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we will be fulfilling those good things that he has planned for us every day. So I challenge you to say yes to Jesus, to do so by praying that prayer, humble me, and to turn around and leverage your life, to do an act of service that will benefit others. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the example of Jesus. I thank you what he did for us. And I pray that we would have that same attitude, that same mindset. Think like Jesus thought. That you would humble us. That you would help us to see ourselves as you see us. And that we would be willing to put others first. 
Give us courage to pray that prayer. Give us insight to know what to do with what you say to us in that process and use us, leverage us for the benefit of the world around us. Make us an e means to an end that is not about us. We pray this in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen.